0: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Again, that is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you. You can open it to page 953. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy
1: Good morning, I hope everyone had a Merry Christmas, and uh, yeah, like many of the people before me have said, this is the last Sunday of 2021, and it is, a, it is quite the honor that we can gather together uh, to worship God. So let's uh, start with a prayer before we begin. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word, and silence silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So Peter wrote this letter to Christians, both Jew and Gentile, when they were facing many trials and persecution. The opposition that they faced were both from within and from the outside world. People didn't like Christians, and that resulted in persecution from without, and the church also faced trials of, you know, corruption and temptations from within. They lived in a world where it seemed that no matter where they turned, they were between a rock and a hard place. You couldn't be a Christian outside because of the blatant discrimination and persecution. And it was hard to be a Christian inside because you were constantly stumbling with sin, sexual immorality, idolatry, greed, and the like. So, what could you possibly say to a people that faced this kind of opposition? Although I've chosen one passage in this letter, this one particular passage, the entire letter is devoted to the theme of answering these concerns. Peter encourages his readers to mature in their faith and to trust in God, meaning to increase in their obedience to God throughout their lives, especially especially when they faced trials and or suffering suffering shouldn't decrease their obedience it should increase it 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 19 encapsulates the heart of the text when he writes therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good and after the introduction of this letter Peter Knowing that he is writing to a church that is facing many trials, suffering through many difficult persecutions, starts off this way. He starts off by praising God. You know, every Saturday throughout the last 16 months, we went over a psalm before we entered into a time of prayer. And one thing you would have noticed is that even when facing the darkest of times, the psalmist would frequently start with praise. They would start with rejoicing in the Lord. And here Peter starts by blessing God. Just as in in the Psalms like 113 where the psalmist would bless the name of the Lord, here Peter blesses the name of the Lord like in the Old Testament formula, but with a name never revealed before in the Old Testament. And that is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this revelation is the revelation of a new covenant, a new testament. And Peter encourages his readers to start with praise to God because in this new covenant, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. This new birth is new birth into new life. Once hopelessly caught in despair, now given new life. On this Wayne Gruden would write, no foreknowledge of the fact that we would believe, no foreseeing of any desirableness or merit on our part is mentioned here or anywhere else in Scripture when indicating God's ultimate reason for our salvation. It is simply according to his great mercy that he gave us new life. And so understanding this, Peter says, praise God, rejoice with me, because we have been born again to a living hope. And this hope isn't just wishful thinking, but it's assured by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That means this hope is looking forward eager and yet confident of the life to come. And this is a living hope. It is an ever-growing hope. With every passing day and with every passing year, it means that this hope grows stronger. And this is a good measure of our maturity, is it not? To what degree do you have this intense, an eager expectation of the life to come. How do you hold on to this hope in contrast with other things in this life? What do you hold on to with a tight grip? And what do you hold on to with an open palm? I'm afraid that many times those who would call themselves Christian do the opposite of what the scriptures would dictate. That means they are either very immature as a Christian or they are not a Christian at all. Either way, it is a very dangerous position to be in because you are either deluded or naive. But we tend to hold on to the temporal. And it could be anything from sexual sins, but also money, family, and for the past two years, it could be health, to be disease-free. And we have put these things now, unfortunately, in a moral binary. And for some reason, we have come to a place where if you get this Omnicorn Prime leader of the Decepticons, you're supposed to feel ashamed. What has let to what has led us to this point of irrationality and we can leave that thought for another time but as a christian you should feel ashamed not if you get omicron plus but if the first thing that you thought of when someone else got sick was your own welfare and not the sick brother or sister then you should feel ashamed and I have responses always coming back to me. But my relative is immunocompromised. And yes, so is mine. But they're not sick. But my brother is. My sister is. That's something you should feel ashamed for. And I want to let that sit for a moment. As a Christian who has been given this living hope, how do you act? How do you respond? In August of 1527, the bubonic plague, also named Black Death, it struck Wittenberg in Germany. While many fled in fear of their lives, it was Martin Luther and his wife, Katharina, who was actually pregnant at the time, that remained in the city to treat the infected. Many people called for him to flee Wittenberg, with his family, but he chose to stay. And this is what he wrote in response. Yes, and this is Martin Luther writing, yes, no one should dare leave his neighbor unless there are others who will take care of the sick in their stead and nurse them. In such cases, we must respect the word of Christ. I was sick and you did not visit me. According to this passage, we are bound to each other in such a way that no one may forsake the other in his distress, but is obliged to assist and help him as if as he himself would like to be helped. And Martin Luther wasn't negligent with his health. He didn't throw caution to the wind. He practiced what we would call today social distancing, and he avoided going to places unnecessarily. Okay, But he declared this, I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. He would wisely counsel his readers to utilize medicine and intelligence. He would say to guard and to take good care of the body so that we can live in good health. But he would add this very, very important caveat. He would say, if my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person but will go freely. Mind you, this was no mild disease. You didn't have a 99% chance of survival. At best, if you receive medicine, if you receive medicine and care, you had a 70% chance of survival. But if you didn't have anything, and if you were left alone, your chances were less than 10%. There were those that disagreed with him, And while he respected their positions, he urged people to be prepared for either life or death. How? How did he urge people to prepare themselves for life or death? By listening to the sermon and attending the sacraments. He would say, First, one must admonish the people to attend church and listen to the sermon so that they may learn through God's word on how to live and how to die. And during the plague, he conducted services not only just every week, during the plague, he conducted them every single day. And he wrote this We die at our posts. Christian doctors cannot abandon their hospitals, Christian governors cannot flee their districts, Christian pastors cannot abandon their congregations. The plague does not dissolve our duties. It turns them to crosses on which we must be prepared to die. What do you hold on to tightly? And what do you hold on to with an open palm? So this living hope assured to us by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is understanding that we have been secured a new resurrection body and new spiritual life. But we are weakened when we constantly bombard ourselves with things that gratify us instantaneously. As soon as we are bored, what do we do? We pick up our phones. As soon as we are hungry, we can order food. As soon as we are tired, we can lie down on our perfectly temperature-set mattress and climate-controlled bedroom, which, by the way, is 45% humidity. But what this microwave culture has brought us is this false notion that these things are necessary and that we are owed these things right away. However, these things are not only not necessary, they will not last. We are easily aggravated when our phones don't open up fast enough, when we stay hungry for more than five minutes, and when our pillow just doesn't have the right amount of fluff. And that makes us fighting over getting that exact thing. We toil and strive for these things, but these things do not last. The Christian does not look for his or her best life now. The Christian understands that this will be, in fact, his or her worst life. Because if you are living your best life now, guess what? You won't be living in the life to come. However, the Christian is promised his or her best life in the life to come. In verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You know, God's people in the Old Testament were promised an inheritance in the land of Canaan. But the earthly land of Canaan was to point to the eternal city of God. That is the inheritance for God's people. The object of their living hope is this inheritance, and it is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. First, imperishable. That means it is not subject to decay. It will not perish with the passing of time. All earthly possessions will ultimately decay and be destroyed. This is why even the newest phone or vehicular transport or house will not and cannot provide lasting satisfaction. And because creation right now is in bondage to corruption, as it says in Romans 8.21. But we have been shown the realities of eternity by the revelation of God himself come to us, Emmanuel. God's word, where the grass withers and flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever and our resurrection bodies which we saw in 1 Corinthians 15:52 in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed this inheritance is also undefiled It means it will not be stained by sin. It will not be polluted by sin and will have the full approval of God. When something or someone was defiled, they would be unfit to be brought before God in worship. There are numerous passages in the Pentateuch elaborately detailing what was acceptable to God and they were the purest of things, the most beautiful and holy things. Because these things were pointing to the undefilement, the purity of our inheritance. That's what it means, that our inheritance will also be undefiled. And our inheritance is unfading. This is not like earthly wealth which fades away, like it says in James 1, 11 For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. fall and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits it will never wither never grow dim it will never lose its glory in first peter 5 4 and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory And this inheritance has been kept in heaven for you. You know, the verb form for kept is the perfect passive participle. That means this is a completed past activity done by God. And it continues to be there. And it is for you. This is the first time Peter uses the second person. He doesn't say us, it's for us. He says it's for you, it's kept for you. As if Peter wanted to make this personal. It's as if you went to the hottest restaurant in town. You walk over to the maitre d' and he asks, name on the reservation? And you're like, and you say your name. And immediately he says, ah, Mr. Brian Lee, we have been waiting for you. Let me take you to your seat. That's not my name. But the point is, everything on earth will pass away. It will fade away because of sin. No nation, whether it was the Roman Empire or the United States of America, will last because of sin. It too shall pass away. No wealth that you have or acquire will last, even if you put it in land or stocks or Bitcoin, because of sin it too shall pass away. But the beauty of the inheritance in heaven, which is in every single way superior to anything on earth, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it is kept for you. And this is all amazing and all, you might think. But what if, what if, You can't, or you're not sure that you could remain faithful. You know, the persecution might get a little bit more intense. I have people worried about being able to keep faith in their workplaces. They can't say certain things about biblical purity and sexuality without the possibility of you getting penalized or even terminated or, or expelled in other parts of the world, like Afghanistan, they'll tra- drag you out into the street and they'll kill every, one of your single, every single one of your family members first before they kill you. What if you're struggling, though, with sin and afraid that one day you won't be struggling with it anymore in the sense that you'll be totally given into the sin Rationalizing it just like the world has been doing since Adam and Eve. And it's this anxiety that keeps your mouth from praising God and it holds you back from service and it keeps you back from the joy of obedience. And the more intense the trial or persecution, what if you get more anxious? Peter in the very next verse assures them this, that who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The word for guarded is a military word which can mean to guard against escape but also guard against attack. So this isn't talking about an inheritance anymore. Peter is talking about the second person, you, he mentioned who the inheritance was for. You, you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You are continually being guarded. But where's the stress of the sentence? Where's the weight in this sentence? It's on God's power. Excuse me, it's on God's power. You may be weak. In fact, let me confidently assert this about you you are weak, but God is strong. And you are guarded by God's power. That means nothing gets in and nothing gets out. That means he is the one that will protect you, and he is the one that will sustain you. He's going to protect you and sustain you. And the way God's power works is through faith. And this is what Peter is trying to get us to understand. Our faith, hope, trust must be put in God. So if you flip it around, how do you know that God's power is working within you? Your faith will endure. Again, this military term of guard means you are personally protected by God. In Romans eight thirty three, Paul writes, "Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, and that is why nothing will be able to separate you from the love of Christ in Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord." In Philippians one six, it says, "And I am sure of this." That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So will we fall away? Stop believing? No, because you are protected by the power of God through faith. This is the faith that was given to us when we first believed. It's not a different kind of faith. It's that very faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He keeps us through faith, the very same faith we were given when we first believed. That's what faith is, and that's the difference we must understand. In Psalm 73, 26, it says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Bible is teaching us that faith is about the object and not the subject. My faith is in God, and that's why it will not fail. That's the character of faith. God guards us through our personal faith, our trust in God, which is in turn powered by God. So when you are facing anxiety about anything, anything at all, recognize that that anxiety is really a force that is trying to turn your face away from God and then unto yourself as if you were the one that had that power as if you were the ultimate object of your faith as if you were the one guarding your place as a child of God that's why anxiety is such a grave evil and on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would teach this, and I'm going to read the whole thing because I think we need to learn, listen to every single word here, and it's relevant to us right now on December 26, 2021. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, For tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As you're listening to this teaching by Jesus, as Jesus was teaching his disciples not to be anxious, where was the focus? You will notice then that the more anxious you get, your focus is turned away from God and put on yourself That's why when you're anxious, you can't worship. Maybe you're here physically, but your mind is elsewhere. And Jesus said what he said because he knows our tendencies. Fear and anxiety is nothing new to the human. We want so badly to secure our future. We teach it to our kids from a young age. Make sure you get the good grades that you need so that you could get into the good school that you need to get into, so that you could get a good job, so that you could get a good like career, house, family. And if, if you don't get A's in third grade, you're gonna lose all of that. And why do you think like kids are anxious today? And fear and anxiety is nothing new because we all want to secure so badly our future. And we do it through our savings, insurance, community, and so on. But we cannot completely avoid the dangers, the potential dangers of terrorism, of disease, rising crime rates, natural disasters. And that's what leads us into this current culture of anxiety. Fear that causes anxiety is nothing new. I mean, I even have a weird phobia that I can't control. When I ride a Ferris wheel, I hold on to the rails. My wife thinks it's hilarious, but Jesus knows my anxieties, right? And I lift it up to him. But even though Jesus knew that we would have fears and anxieties, he tells his disciples not to be anxious, And this is not speaking out against planning for the future or taking precautions. But the problem comes when we place our confidence in our own machinations, our own schemes and plans. We are anxious because we trust in our own abilities only to recognize then we actually have no real power over the things that we need to or we want to. We have no real power over our future over our families, and over our salvation. And the word of God continues to remind us that it is the Lord that holds the future in his hand. In Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans in his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Faith is putting our trust in God and faith comes from hearing the word of God God doesn't promise us a trial free life but what he does promise is that he will be with us to the end of the age this is the faith that is for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time I'm only going to stop here because I want to finish 6 to 9 on the last day of the year. But this is why our best life is yet to come. This is why even though we don't know the future, it's God who will hold us, He will keep us, He will hold us fast. This is why we can rejoice in Him, So let us worship our God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have protected us and you have been with us and you have strengthened your people in these trying times all over the world. Lord, you listened and you heard our prayers and cries and you answered them. God, we ask that we wouldn't be a people of anxiety, but we would be a people of faith trusting in your leading, trusting that where you lead us by your holy word, we will follow with all faith and assurance given to us by your son, Jesus Christ. Oh God, be with your people, strengthen us, lead us. Let's take this time to pray. I know this is the last Sunday of the year, but perhaps we can take a time of reflection of how our hearts have been, concerning all the things that perhaps we are bombarded by, money, disease, career, relationships, family, whatever it is. And just as the word of God exhorts us, let's lift it up to God. In the times where we didn't and we focused on ourselves and our anxiety grew, let's take this time to repent and turn away from looking at ourselves and do as God commands, and obey him by turning our face to him. Let's take this time to pray.